It doesn't sound like we're actually addressing a problem anymore. It sounds like you're pushing a solution that you've already dreamed up. So let me tell you what the problem was that my solution will fix. No, 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 no. I want to know what your user's experience and pain is, and then let's find a solution. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to the Kelly family and let you know that we exist for you. Also want to make a quick announcement for all those who've been trying to reach out to us through our ROI pod email address. We found out that there's an issue with our server and receiving those emails. It's been addressed. It's been fixed. And we want you to know if you have a question, if you're looking to get some expertise advice from any of our faculty or you know of a guest who would make a great individual we could talk to for our show, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I Again, ROIPod, R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I dot E-D-U. So we are in a brand new year. 2020 is behind us for many that is a big sigh of relief for others. You know, this was a, I mean, this is definitely a year of testing and trial and coming together uh, as individuals to try to work through uh, this pandemic. And obviously there's been a lot of lessons learned throughout the course of 2020 and things that we're going to need to bring with us. We can't just keep back in 2020. There are lessons we need to bring with us into 2021. One of those being how do we work through problems within our organization? How do we bring about the idea of empathy and make it practical? How do we creatively solve problems within our organization? So this week, I am honored to be joined by Kelly's senior lecturer, Brenda Bailey-Hughes, who is also the author of the Design Thinking Handbook. Brenda, welcome back to the ROI podcast. It's great to be back and happy new year. So you just came out with this design thinking handbook. This is something I got to look through a little bit. It's really interesting because it's it's something that I, I feel it takes it takes some very theoretical practices of organizational communication, how you think through problems and you know, how do you bring in a lot of these quote unquote soft skills that are, you know, we talk about on this podcast into the real workplace, like into the office space and into how do you lead your team. So first and foremost, you know, before we start diving into this book, let's talk about what is design thinking, because that term alone seems to be something that could be very theoretical or very out there kind of in the ethos. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so design thinking is the idea of business people sort of stealing or co-opting the mindsets and the methodologies of classically trained designers. So think architects, think apparel designers, furniture designers. But what do they know that allows them to solve problems of what's a comfortable chair? What's a pair of jeans that will actually fit a woman's body? They're out there trying to solve problems with particular mindsets and tools and business people thought, hmm, these seem like really creative people. We're facing increasingly complex problems, uncertainty. 
does their discipline have anything that we could use to solve our problems? And it turns out that yes, absolutely we can. So it's the mindsets and the methods of classically trained designers applied to business settings. That's kind of how I generically define design thinking. A more specific definition, and my favorite one, is it, it is a making-based approach to problem solving rooted in human empathy and done in collaborative multidisciplinary teams. So if you kind of unpack that, a making-based approach, that is critical to design thinking. We, we look at problem solving and we solve by trying to make a solution, even if it's fast and it's, a, it, it's just a, a grasp at straws for a solution, but you make something. You don't just talk, 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 talk about design thinking, which is ironic since you and I are talking about design thinking, but uh, you don't just write white papers about it. You don't just sit on committees about it. You actually make something. You try to create some sort of solution. So that's the making-based piece. Rooted in human empathy was the second part of that definition. So where some, there are lots of great problem-solving methodologies out there in the world. Some of them, for example, start with big data. Not that design thinking ignores big data, but that's not its root. Its root is human empathy. Its root is I have to really understand you, Mark, Matt Matella, and, and what's going on in your life and, and what's going on in your world before I can solve any kind of problems for you. So it, it's rooted in that, that empathy piece. And then, of course, done in collaborative multidisciplinary teams so that we don't get stuck in our silos of thinking where we, we're in our own echo chambers and we're only thinking of solutions from our unique perspective of experiences. And I think it's such a timely approach because, you know, you think of when a disruptor event happens, whether that be within your market, whether that be within your organization, or as 2020 has shown, whether that be across the globe, you know, there's major disruptor events that are constantly happening uh, across the board, whether micro disruptors or macro disruptors. And I think, you know, to your point, you don't have time sometimes to form committees. You don't have time to be, okay, let's take the next three weeks. Let's all separate, come up with the ideas. And then, you know, over the course of six months, you know, you, you're figuring out a solution that needs to be addressed now. Because, you know, for example, you know, the restaurant industry right now is in, in shambles. A lot of travel industries are, you know, are really struggling to, to continue to keep their doors open. And so the, for some, when disruptors happen, they don't have time to you know, take all this time to find the perfect solution. They have to do something now. And I think that's really right. appropriate. Well, and it's not, they, they have to, they don't have the time and they don't have the data. We've never been in the midst of a worldwide global pandemic before. I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know what transitioning all of our employees to online is going to do. We have no data sets. And that's when design thinking is truly a beautiful methodology. If you've got tons of data and your problem is fairly well-defined and you've got data to work with, I don't know that I would recommend problem solving using design thinking. Um, but boy, the 2020 kinds of issues we faced, you bet, design thinking is golden. And that's a, and that's a really good point to make too. Uh, and I, and I want to, for, for people who have maybe, you know, gone through college, gone through some universities and never experienced, you know, like a studio class, for example, or, or a class that really invokes creativity, um, it, it does stretch a different type of muscle when you're trying to make 
uh, make something, when you're trying to make a solution, when you're trying to design something from nothing, it stretches a different part of of your brain that I think, you know, for a lot of times when you go to business school, you know, you learn, you know, okay, you learn the data, you learn how to, how to interpret data, you learn, you know, how to be a leader, you learn leadership skills, you learn all the essential things to grow and foster a healthy organization, but you don't necessarily get the, how do you take something from nothing? How do you work it out in this quote unquote studio setting? And then how do you make it work in the trial and error. So talk a little bit more about that. Like how do you bring some of that creativity or how do you teach, begin to teach that creative design for, you know, people who aren't used to thinking that way? Yeah. Well, apparently you're right about it. Stretching a new muscle. This is definitely my most requested workshop of 2020. Now, part of that may have just been that it was 2020, but I think to your point, it's also that recognition that oh, this is a different part of my brain. This is a different muscle. I love that metaphor. So I think it's important when I teach it to make sure people understand it's not just the tools. And I would love for us to talk about some of those tools, but the mindsets have to be there too. So for design thinkers, you're working with mindsets like optimistic. Design thinkers always think there's a better way to do this, or there is a solution out there. I can't see it. I don't know what it is, but there is one. And if we take some of the same tools that that design thinkers use, but we try to apply them without that optimism, or for example, without that collaborativeness, they would fall flat. So it's important not to just think about the tools themselves, but the design thinking mindsets of being optimistic, of being visually driven, of being collaborative. I think that's a really important sort of foundational piece. But then, yeah, then you want to get into playing with some of the tools. I break the tools into three sort of phases. Different design thinking methodologies use five phases. Uh, Three is easier for me to remember, so I use three. I think about it as imagining the experience of your user or your customer So one is imagining. And then the second phase is sort of ideating, starting to generate what could a better world look like now that I understand your current world, I understand the problems you're experiencing. Can I dream up, can I ideate some new ways of being for you, experiencing our product or our services? And then prototyping is, uh, or innovating is that third stage and that's prototyping. That's putting something on paper. That's putting something in a, uh, in, into a role play so that you can experience it. It's, it's giving some bones to that solution so that again, it's not just talking about writing about or committeeing about but doing it. So imagine and then ideate and then innovate are the three phases that I encourage people to work through with specific tools in each of those three. And that's really cool to think about because, you know, it does give a process to how do you get from, you know, this problem to the solution of this problem. Yet there, there seems to be like, there could be a tendency or maybe there's a uh, temptation um, to get stuck along the way, you know, because as a leader, you, you almost have to put some parameters on because if you're, if you're facing a, uh, a problem that needs to be quickly addressed. You may not have, you can imagine, but to a point you can ideate, but to a point, and then you can innovate, but to a point, I mean, ideally we would want an infinite amount of time, but even then, if you have an infinite amount of time, that could almost be the Achilles heel that keeps you stuck in always imagining, because if you imagine, well, then there's always going to be something better. And then there's going to be something better and then something better. So as you're working through, you know, how do you, um, guide, 
organizational leaders to set those parameters on, okay, you know, this is when you need to like move into, you know, imagine, and this is where you need to ideate, and this is where you need to innovate. Like, how do you work through those parameters? Right. Well, I think, I think having some sprints, design thinking sprints, where we're going to spend the next two weeks uh, observing our users, immersing ourselves in their experiences, engaging them in interviews, and then boom, we're moving on. So just literally giving yourself timeframes and creating design thinking sprints will help. I also think it's important to remember that I, I lay out these phases as a, as a way to help move us through the problem solving methodology, but they do tip back on themselves sometimes. So sometimes I get to a prototype and it doesn't work very well. So I need to go back and imagine again to figure out why didn't this prototype work or go back maybe just to the ideate stage. We really did understand our user, but what we came up with failed. So let's go back to ideating what else might work. So they, they do cycle in and out. It's not as, as pure as it might sound when I lay out the phases. Sure. Like you don't just imagine, all right, we're done imagining no more. Now we're in ideation. Like don't even think about imagining like it, it's a constantly back and forth. No, I, I think that is, I think that's a really good thing because there are some leaders I mean, you know, and I'm myself being this type of leader where, you know, I, I like a very robust system. Like, you know, you go from here, here's the parameters, here's how it's defined, here's how it's used. And then you go to here. So sometimes that flexibility, um, without that, having that personal permission of being able to dive back and forth. I think that's a great place to say permission to freely flow in between each and every bubble. So now, you know, what does this look like, you know, as this is brought into the real world, you know, what does a well-implemented design thinking look like within an organization? You know, what, what are results that come out of it? You know, how, how is communication handled? You know, so what, you know, in your experience, does define success for design thinking in an organization? Yeah, that's a great question. And the success for design thinking would be you solved a problem that your user or your customer was experiencing, and they are delighted with their new experience. I think that is a great success factor. So when you look at some successful design thinking projects, you see things like um, Microsoft's programmable, adaptable controller. So they designed an entire gaming console controller with the needs of uh, gamers who have cerebral palsy or other neuromuscular diseases in mind. So the, the pads are big and programmable so that, that different people with different um, disabilities can work with it. Some people kind of laughed at Microsoft and were like, you're designing this entire game controller for this tiny sliver of a market, then the, the, it's such a niche market, but their motto was no gamer left behind. And the, the design of the, the tool itself is brilliant. It got them tons of good press and, and met their value of no gamer left behind. So I think that's a, an example of, of design thinking at work and really working well. Another one that I love is ATM machines. Now, a few years ago, every time you drove up to an ATM machine, you'd see signs. Sometimes they were just handwritten signs sort of taped onto the machine, but it would say, don't forget your card. Don't leave without taking your card. So obviously 99.9% .9 of the people who go to an ATM machine are going to make a cash withdrawal. That's what we're there for. So if your money spits out, you leave and there sits the card. 
many ATM machines made a slight adjustment to the sequence so that your card spits out first and then the cash. And just that solved the problem. You don't leave before you get your cash. So problem solved without needing to give you instructions or taping signs to the machines. It just, it just works, right? That's uh, another great definition, I think, of a successful design is it just works. So I love that. Um, Post-it notes are, of course, a classic example of a a product that doesn't need explanation and it just works. You don't have to read instructions for it to work. I was in the kitchen last night loving my two cup glass measuring cup. You know, the one it, it, you can boil water in it in the microwave, you can measure in it, you can pour out of it. It's so simple, so elegant, and it solves so many problems for me. Those are great designs. And those are wonderful examples because they're typically some of the simplest solutions or we, we tend to take things for granted. You know, some one of the simplest tools we may use as an organizational leader, we look at it and it's just so a part of what we do. Yet, when we really take a second to think about it, it does come from a great place of someone sat there and thought, where's a problem and how can I address that problem beautifully? Not address it with all these complex, you know, add-ons and everything else. I'm just addressing this specific problem to the specific pain point. And I mean, when you don't think about the pain point anymore, boom, you know, the, that's a successful, successful product. You know, and exactly. one, one thing in your book I, I really want to bring up um, is during the imagining, you know, you talk about understanding the user experience. And I think, you know, in some organizations, this there are, there are two lanes with the user experience. I mean, there's obviously what the user actually thinks, what they're actually saying about the product and what they're actually saying about their pain point. But sometimes in organizations, there is a perception of what the user thinks, where it's a board of people, a committee who don't really talk to the user, but they talk more about what the user might be experiencing and there tends to be some sort of disconnect. So can you talk about, you know, what organizations can do and how they can drill into what the user actually is thinking? Yeah, I think that's one of the beauties of using the design thinking methodology is you would never dream of moving on to ideation if you haven't spent significant amount of time immersing yourself in the experience of your users engaging in interviews and conversations with your users and even observing the thing, the product or the service that you're innovating on. Um, I, I think those are, it's, you're right about the two lanes. I also think it's important to notice that sometimes interviewing your user is a step in the right direction. It's better than sitting in a committee perceiving what you think they're experiencing. It's a step in the right direction. But sometimes the user doesn't even explain the problem quite the way they think it's going to be. So I think a great example of that was at the um, Washington DC Holocaust Museum. IDEO was asked to, IDEO is a famous designing firm. They were asked to create a new Holocaust exhibit with the intention of increasing conversation among guests at the museum. So they thought, oh, we'll do this app and this app will be really cool. And they ran it by some, some guests. Yeah, an app would be awesome. Okay, let's do an app. So they did a low fidelity prototype of an app. They put it out there. When you talk to people about the app, the guests said, oh, yes, we loved the app. The app was great. When they actually watched the guests interact with the exhibit and the app, the, the amount of conversation actually declined. Now, remember, their goal was to increase 
conversation. So they ended up just doing a more old fashioned or traditional artifact based exhibit, but they observed and sure enough, the conversation went up, the volume of conversation went up. So sometimes that observation piece is as important as the interview piece, because even the users aren't aware of all the, for example, in a software design, they may do five steps without even consciously knowing they are doing them because they've done them so often. But if you're watching them, you can be thinking, wait a minute, they don't need to take those five steps. I can create a shortcut that gets them there in one. But you wouldn't know that if you hadn't taken the time to sit and watch your users engage with your process, engage with your products. And that's a, a really great example because I think for a lot of organizational leaders, I mean, including myself, when you get feedback that said, that I love this, this is working, this is great, you almost tend to forget, okay, what was the specific thing we were trying to address in the first place? Like you said, the conversation piece, increasing conversation. Yet, if you get surrounded and caught up in the, oh, we have something that works, it may, you, it's easy or the temptations there to forget about the original pain point to begin with and just run with, oh, great, we got a great app. This became even better than we thought. Move on. And then later on, you find out why is it not working? Why? we? I thought we addressed this. We were celebrating. Everyone said they loved it, but yet we're still not seeing what we desired. Because they're still in pain. And that's one of my favorite tools. There's a, a tool in design thinking called the journey map, where you map out either chronologically or spatially every step in your store that a user takes or chronologically or sequentially every step in your process they have to take. I love doing journey maps with pain points, high and low. For example, we did one with the experience of one of our undergraduate students with the undergraduate student population as they try to apply for and as they're going through their recruiting efforts. And so they have these sorts of high points where, ooh, I, you know, I'm going to the job fair and I've got a spiffy looking new resume to the pain point of nobody called me back and three of my friends got callbacks, you know, like, so we, we map those high, high points and low points and then you can solve to the low points. And, and I want to move on to the, you know, the next in the ideate phase. And now um, we're just going through a brief run through this book because I want everyone to be able to get their hands on this eventually and, you know, dive into the, the nuts and bolts, you know, but one of the important things in the ideate phase you, you, is you say to stay open to all possibilities, you know, and I think this, this also becomes a pain point because I've sat in meetings where, you know, they, they say they want honest feedback or they say they want any idea there's no such thing as a bad idea you know we're just throw it out there and so some people take that as meaning no bad idea okay let me throw it out there the moment they throw it out there it becomes you know look down like they don't live up to the uh, what they just said they're just looking for stuff hoping that someone's going to come with a great idea when really probably a lot of the ideas out there started from the most simplest solution that's not been judged and it's like, all right, let's explore it. So how do you, how do you work with an organizational leader who has a tendency, you know, they want, they have the best of intentions, you know, but they, they may not um, live up to what they're saying of, of, of accepting every idea as something that, Hey, this could be a solution. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Matt. I, so a couple of tools that would probably help in that situation. And first of all, I think it is the most common 
challenge that I face when I'm working with a design thinking team is that I feel like I'm constantly pushing back to say, mm, that sounds like you've got a solution in mind. It doesn't sound like we're actually addressing a problem anymore. It sounds like you're pushing a solution that you've already dreamed up and sort of reverse engineering. I have a solution that I think sounds cool. So let me tell you what the problem was that my solution will fix. No, 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 no. I want to know what your user's experience and pain is, and then let's find a solution. So it is, you absolutely have put you know the nail on the head there as far as what the problem is. A couple of the tools that help. One is this idea of divergent convergent thinking. I, I like it when people go out and do some of their own research and then come back together with all these divergent ideas. And then before we converge or, or, or focus back in on, okay, so are we agreed that this is the problem we're solving? Or are we agreed that this is the direction? Before we do that, we take turns going around the, the multidisciplinary team of design thinkers, and each person gets a chance to tell a story uninterrupted and uncriticized of what they heard when they went out to do their ethnographic research, when they were out there doing their empathetic research of observing, immersing themselves, or, uh, or engaging with users. So I think that's one tool that really helps. Another one is the persona. So back in the imagine stage, we frequently will create sort of an archetypal um, persona that pulls from the, the characteristics of the user. So classic uh, examples of personas are Trader Joe's. Their, their persona is something like our customer is uh, an out of work college professor who drives a very, very used Volvo. You know, it's like, okay, they know who their user is. Um, so, you you know, and, and we make those visual. So I've usually got pictures of people with what their afternoons look like, what their mornings look like, what their pain points are, how many keys are on their key ring, you know, whatever I can think to bring this persona to life. And so then if I'm in those meetings and someone starts to push a solution too early, I can say, how would that help Marcella over here? And I point to this persona that we've created. How would that help Marcella? Does that solve Marcella's problem? How does it solve her problem? So really pushing back with the persona. And the last one, it's, it's the simplest little tool and I'm almost embarrassed to in, have included it in the playbook because it seems so silly, but it totally addresses your problem. I have a not yet rock and it's literally a rock that has the words not yet painted on it. And we just push it out in the middle of the table when we can tell anyone on the design thinking team is heading towards solution a little too quickly, which is what I think you're talking about. That and, and But the thing is, is with the simplest of tools, those tend to be the most effective because when you do get back to kind of the basics of where were we started, because you can get ahead. Like you said, when, when there's creative juices flowing and you know, sitting in a meeting where ideas are flying, it's so quick to go from, you know, addressing the problem to being so wild and out there with ideas that your solution is to a problem that doesn't even exist yet because you're so creative. Like you forgot the problem that's right here, right now. You're already on the problem that that's going to be here in five years, but you've already come with the solution that's going to address that in, you know, 10 years. And so I think that's a very simple way of keeping it focused on what's the problem at hand. Right. And keeping it focused on the user. So another great example was from um, SAP. They were doing a, a, a solution, a problem solving workshop with a grocery store. 
And the grocery store kept saying, we have an inventory problem. So of course, some of the SAP consultants were all excited about building a new database that would track their inventory. And finally, someone said, no, 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 we do not have an inventory problem. Inventory is a solution. We have a customers can't find what they want on the shelves when they want it problem. That opened up a whole world of different possibilities as far as a solution rather than just an inventory system. So finally, you know, when you get into the innovate, you know, the third branch of the design thinking process, you know, your big thing on this one is get feedback. So what does it look like to get the right feedback? Because feedback, I mean, obviously there's people that just are going to be disloyal to the brand. They hate it. You're not going to win them over. You're talking with users or you're talking with people on your team. They just, they just don't believe in it. And so it can be easy. I mean, everyone will give, can give feedback. But there is some feedback you listen to, some feedback you reject, and some feedback that has really no place of, of even being brought up in the first place. So talk about what does good feedback through this stage look like? I think that's a great point. And it, let's back it up. What are they responding to? What are you asking for feedback in response to? And that's where these low fidelity prototypes are so important. So I'm not just explaining an idea because at that point, It's so easy for us as business people to switch out of explaining an idea into selling an idea because we've spent a month or two months or a week or however long we spent on it. We think we've got a solution or we wouldn't have thrown it into a prototype. So I think it's having something physical that people are interacting with so that the feedback you're getting isn't just, hey, I like it or no, I don't like it. Because as you said, then you've got all these brand loyalties in, in, in creeping in. I'm watching you use it and I'm seeing, does it work? Did it solve your problem? Did you smile or did you frown when you used it? I'm attuning to your nonverbals to pay attention to where you seem frustrated. Where do you quit using my system, my process, my product? Because it's too complicated and you've given up. Where do you lean over and ask the person next to you? What, how do you do this? That's great feedback for me because it's real. And it's not just about like and dislike. It's about functionality. It's about usability and, and about desirability. I mean, that's important, but it's, it's watching you interact is how I get the best feedback. So that's a low fidelity prototype. It might be a role play if this is a more process centric thing. So I set up the stages that I assume would be a part of our process. And I have you walk through the experience, even in a role play scenario. I plant some actors from our design thinking team that react the way they think different people would react to you so that you have an experience with our solution. And that experience informs the feedback. And that's where I was going to try to bring this home on is, you know, you mentioned this seems very, you know, physical product uh, development, you know, like it seems like this only works in an organization that might be just dealing with, we're building physical things, we're working with physical models, we're working uh, on getting a customer an app or something that they can touch and feel. But yet there's, there's a lot of sector in business that does consulting, does service oriented, you know, don't have a physical, tangible thing, you know, so for organizational leaders who are in that world, you know, how do they bring this, uh, this, design thinking into the product they're selling, the nonprofit they're running, or just whatever they're doing that does not have a physical component to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, yeah, it's important to recognize that 
this isn't just for products. That's where it started. That design field that we're stealing from deals with products. It deals with clothing and houses and buildings and furniture and whatnot. But um, the, the tools and the mindsets work just as well for process-centric or service-centric organizations. I think a couple of great examples might be um, like Zappos when they first started selling shoes online. Now, not the creation of the shoe, that would be product-centric, but the idea, can you sell shoes online? Is anyone going to buy shoes online or is that crazy talk? So the way they low-fidelity prototyped it, at least this is the lore, is they didn't build up a bunch of inventory that they then had to sell off if this idea fell completely flat. They built their online platform. An order would come in. They would run down the street, buy the shoes retail, come back and sell them online. So just to see, is there any merit to this idea? Or, you know, so, so yes, definitely thinking about how you can use the same principles of imagine, ideate, and innovate even for services. Again, Brenda Bailey Hughes, senior lecturer here at the Kelly School of Business, also the author of the Design Thinking Playbook. And if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to go deeper, you can check out and get your hands on it. This ebook in our show notes, click the link and be sure to get a copy and you can work through the Imagine, Ideate, Innovate process that we beginning began to start talking with. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.